Okay, so we are going to do a presentation on the Kalam intelligent design and fine-tuning arguments for the existence of God. This is the last uh, part in our three-part series on science and faith. So welcome. My name is Will. This is Samuel. As we always, we always start off with a quote, and uh, we have a, a quote from Fred Hoyle, who is a Nobel Prize-winning physicist. He says, a common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind for forces worth speaking about in nature. That's a pretty impressive statement from a um, materialistic, atheistic physicist. And this would be specifically for the fine-tuning and intelligent design argument. We now have a quote for, uh, also about science, but it's by Sir Francis Bacon, pioneer of modern science, a huge figure. In, in scientific history, but the quote is, it is true that a little philosophy inclineth man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy brings, bringeth men's minds about to religion. For while the mind of man looketh up second causes scattered, it may sometimes rest in them and go no further. But when it beholdeth the chain of them confederate and linked together, it must needs fly to providence and deity. And so that's a pretty, weird quotation with some hard language, but that's basically saying uh, at first, if we're looking at scientific and philosophical evidence and we're just looking at tiny observations in the world, it will be super easy just to say, yeah, hey, that's all there is. But um, if we put all of them together, it it's begging for explanation and begging for deity and providence because we can't just have all these small things together um, by coincidence. So now just a quick overview of the two arguments that we are going to cover. Uh, Samuel will be covering what is called the Kalam cosmological argument for the uh, kind of existence of the world and the universe. And then I'm going to be cover, covering a argument within the family of teleological arguments or design arguments. And it'll be an argument from intelligent design or the origin of information within the cell. All right, the Kalam cosmological argument. So the origin of this argument is from a medieval Muslim theologian, Al-Khazali. Uh, and this was, this was from like the golden age of, uh, of thinking. So it was basically Jews, Muslims, and Christians assembled a think tank. And there was a period of time where all of them actually put forth great ideas and they took ideas from each other and they interacted with each other and they produced a ton of content. And so this, we could say, is a consequence or a product of that time, especially in, in the Muslim world. And for, for Christians that are like, oh, I don't want to take something from like the Muslim religion, remember that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they're all monotheistic. So the, when we're arguing for a monotheistic creator, all three of those religions can use the same argument. If you wanted to go into uh, something like, oh, Christianity is the true one, you wouldn't use a monotheistic argument uh, because that it, it proves more than one religion, right? And so one person I just want to point out before we even get into this is William Lane Craig, just because he's done so much work on the Kalam cosmological argument. He's actually very well known for it, his work on, on, on time, the Kalam, and um, infinite regresses and anything like that. So uh, if you're looking for someone to read on this topic, I'd suggest him. Now, uh, we're gonna go through scientific grounds and philosophical grounds for this uh, argument. 
First one is scientific grounds. We'll go over the law of entropy and the red light shift. Next one is philosophical grounds. We'll go over the infinite regress, the Grim Reaper paradox, and uh, can we have an actual infinite? We might not go super deep into those because they're very abstract and hard to understand, but we'll introduce them. Logical layout of the argument is very simple. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. All right, first premise. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. And the wording of this is very purposeful. So it's any uh, everything that begins to exist. So not everything that exists. So a lot of people would object to say, oh, if everything that exists has a cause, then who caused God? It's the, the reason we say begins to exist is because if something begins to exist or comes into an existence, we wouldn't say nothing did that or um, we could then say God didn't begin to exist. So to prove this premise, we would just one, look to our experience. Uh, we, we don't experience things just popping into existence and, and out of existence. Uh, we, we have to see causes. So if we have some coffee beans in a coffee maker, we don't just see a cup of coffee automatically appear. We actually have to cause it to appear. Um, so there's nothing we experience that doesn't point to this premise being true. Next is being cannot come from non-being. So something non-existent or not there or that's not alive specifically cannot produce things that are alive. And then the last thing is that a lot of scientists would say, oh, there was nothing in the beginning, but then they would say nothing is something, right? So something did cause the universe to exist. But when we say nothing, we're literally saying no thing at all. So when scientists are saying, oh, something was there and nothing is something, that's contradictory, self-refuting, and absurd. Nothing literally means no thing at all. We can't say no thing is something. That's ridiculous. All right, so premise number two, the universe began to exist. So if the universe began to exist, we can then say the universe has a cause. So here are a bunch of points we can look to for the universe beginning to exist. The first one is the law of entropy. So things are running out of energy. So if the universe never had a beginning and things are running out of energy and there was like an infinite amount of time before us, we would have run out of energy a long time ago and things would have died already. So that's one thing we can point to that kind of proves that there was a beginning because we haven't run out of energy yet. Next, the uh, Hubble, he noticed the red light shift. So when he was looking out into space, he saw uh, red light and what he was able to prove is that the universe was expanding and going away from him and and everything was expanding away from each other so this would just point to an origin point and so a, here's a balloon analogy for you so when we blow up a balloon it gets bigger and is expanding away from each other but if we then let all the air out it goes to one singular point that we can say hey this is the center or this is where it all started and expanded from. Okay, next one is infinite regress. Uh, we aren't going to get into the Grim Reaper paradox a lot because that would take a whole nother talk, but basically the idea of an infinite regress is let's say we are at today and there's an infinite number of days before today. Well, if there are an infinite number of days before today, we wouldn't have gotten to today because you can't get through an infinite by definition. 
Um, so that's that's what would show the the impossibility of not having a beginning. So just the fact that we can't get through an infinite means that the past is finite. Um, so and then we can get into like actual infinites, uh, but that would <laughs> that would get very tricky. So one one thing I do want to distinguish when it comes to infinites, just uh, infinites before you really dive into it yourselves is potential and actual. So an actual infinite is one that exists in reality and a potential one is one that could exist. So like when we are born, we potentially could live forever then. So that's a potential infinite. An actual infinite is something that is like actually in existence that didn't have a beginning or end. So that's something to keep in mind. That's a good distinction. Um, and the ruler analogy would, would pretty much kind of be a visualization for actual infinites. So theoretically it would be possible, but actually it doesn't seem possible. So between inch one and inch two, mathematically there are an infinite amount of points, an infinite amount of numbers, but like actually in reality, there's obviously not an infinite amount of space. We wouldn't say that. Um, so those are just some things to keep in mind when getting into infinity. But again, that could have its own talk. So if you wanna look into it, you can definitely do it by yourself and go to figures like William Wayne Craig. Last thing, from those premises, we could say, therefore the universe has a cause. So if everything that begins to exist has a cause and the universe began to exist, it would have a cause. And this would logically follow from our argument. So it's a deductive argument. Now, if the universe has a cause, what would that look like? And the universe is space, matter, time. And so whatever we are pointing to as a cause cannot be made of space, matter, and time. So when we're looking at the cause of the universe, we would have to say it's very powerful, it's intelligent, it's able to choose to create it's spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. And when we describe something like that, that that's basically God right there. So we are basically describing God when we then say, oh, the universe has a cause. So now we're going to look at um, more of the, the other argument that we're gonna cover in this, in this talk is uh, what I'm calling intelligent design, but more of an argument from intelligent design. Now this is a sub argument or subcategory of argument within the broader category of what we just call design arguments, or arguing from certain facts or elements of design that we see in nature, and then inferring that there's a creator that must have uh, caused that design or intelligence. And so this is a sub-argument within that broad category. Theists have been making design arguments for millennia, but this uh, specific scientific formulation has been popularized by the intelligent design movement, and specifically uh, Dr. Stephen C. Meyer uh, has this one in particular. He has a very good book on the topic called uh, Signature in the Cell. So there's both uh, scientific and philosophical grounds and support for this argument. From a scientific perspective, uh, the point is that functional information requires intelligence. That's the point from a scientific perspective, that DNA cannot arise from randomness and no intelligence. Uh, philosophical grounds is similar, but it's more of a, more of a take of Order cannot arise from chaos, is sort of the philosophical take on this argument. Now, uh, the logical layout of this argument uh, is in three premises. Uh, premise one would say, 
Our uniform and repeated experience shows us that specified functional information invariably arises from an intelligent mind. So every time we see uh, functional uh, information that performs a function and does something, has a purpose for it, it arises from an intelligent mind. Premise two, there is specified functional information inside the DNA molecule. Therefore, premise three, the conclusion, the DNA molecule arose from an intelligent mind. So now we'll work through the argument. Premise one states, once again, our uniform and repeated experience shows us that specified functional information invariably arises from an intelligent mind. We could look at any number of examples of this. Think of uh, Shakespearean language. If you read a novel and you read a passage of Shakespeare, you would never conclude from that that it had no author. Likewise, if you were in a cave, even simple, uh, like cave drawings or uh, inscriptions in a cave, hieroglyphics or anything like that, even if it's sort of rudimentary and simple, you would never conclude that nobody, nobody caused that or nobody, uh, you would conclude that it came from a source, a mind source, uh, similar to cave art. And then a more analogous example would be computer code. So zeros and ones in a computer code, you would never think that an actual computer program that's performing a function, you would never conclude from that, that that arose from randomness um, or just like a blind, a blind monkey creating a bunch of uh, computer code would never arise something that actually performed a function. It'd be highly, highly, highly unlikely. Premise two, we would say that there is this sort of information inside the DNA molecule. So we've actually kind of found from science that there is vastly more complex information, more complex than zeros and ones in a computer code, that function in the DNA molecule in an incredibly complex fashion that are hundreds and hundreds of characters long, these uh, four proteins that function like zeros and ones, so the A's, T's, G's, and C's that you learned about in, in biology class, that those four proteins actually function on the DNA molecule like ones and zeros in a written computer code language. And not only that they function, they have to be ordered in a specific way, but they actually do something. They perform a function. They perform all of the bodily functions that we have in our body. And so we would say that this is very strong evidence that these things arose from a mind or an intelligent source. Therefore, in our conclusion, we'd say that this requires an intelligible explanation. This requires an intelligent source or a design behind it. The DNA molecule arose from an intelligent mind. We would never conclude anything otherwise when we see this sort of complexity, specificity, and information. And this conclusion just logically follows if you accept the first two premises. Now we'll go biblical grounds. So for both arguments, first one is in the intelligent design one. Um, Will is going to go over each of those. So the first one is Psalm 139, 13 through 14. And it says, uh, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. It's a pretty straightforward passage talking about intelligent design. The next one is Romans 1, 18 through 20. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Yeah, so the things that have been made and created clearly show God. Now for the Kalam cosmological argument, we're going to go over a few. The first one is Hebrews 1-2. It says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is this is very simple, just really showing that, okay, God, and also specifically Jesus, created the world. So that's the biblical ground, uh, grounds for that. Also, like Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, something like that. But Hebrews 11-3 is the next one. It says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that which is seen, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Again, pretty pretty straightforward. We we believe these things by faith, which isn't um, accepting something without evidence, but we know that God did it. Last one, Titus 1.3. And it says, And which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Awesome. And that is all of the biblical grounds for these things. There's plenty more, but those are the ones we're just going to feature here. All right, application. Uh, what can these arguments do? So first, they can support your faith when it's weak. So if you ever have a doubt, these things can answer doubts. Next thing is we can use them to evangelize. Some people, uh, although they may not be super into in-depth arguments, you just having a couple of reasons to uh, explain why you believe in God is very impressive and can be used in evangelism. Uh, next, it will bring you closer to understanding God. If we understand the arguments for God and what we're arguing for, it will ultimately help you understand his nature and his attributes and how he created everything. Um, next, all of creation is common grace to us, so we should find wonder in it. So intelligent design and the origins of, of the universe, we should be like full of wonder by those things and really explore it. Uh, last is it bridges the gaps between science and religion, which has become a huge uh, doubt or roadblock for many people. So that's what we would say for application. That's all we got. Thank you for listening.